and bonjour. This is Dusty Rhodes and you're welcome to the Mimosa Matters Winning Against Cancer podcast. A short series where people around us or connected with Mimosa Matters share their stories. Today we're speaking with Aidan, a very good friend of mine, actually, from our radio days back in Ireland and to this day a regular visitor at our place in the south of France. Aidan's story, like many people, starts with a niggling little thought, which he initially ignored. So I'm chatting with Aidan, uh, who has been a friend of mine for a long, long time and then some. Indeed. Just a little bit of background. Do you remember the first time that we met? You and I met. That's a very good question, Dusty. See, I immediately think of RTE and 2FM, but I know we've hmm. known each other prior to that, surely. Or maybe we hadn't. I kind of feel like I know you all my life nearly now at this stage. But And I mean that, but it probably was RTE, if the truth be told, because our paths didn't cross prior to RTE days. You were doing, you were up in Atlantic and you were in Sunshine or other places like that. And I, I was on ARD and Q102s and Capital Radios and we, we really didn't, uh, our paths just didn't cross. I remember the first time that I properly met you was in the bowels of the uh, radio centre in RTE, the holy grail of national broadcasting in Ireland. Indeed. And Aidan did uh, this uh, show in the evenings between 10 and 12 o'clock. And he was great at it. And I was kind of new in the radio station and I was going to be doing weekends. And they said, whatever, come in. I can't remember why I was there. I was probably just hanging out because, oh my God, this is where I work now. This is amazing. Brilliant. It was, it was a childhood dream to work there, right? Um, and I remember going in and just instantly clicking with you and having a bit of a laugh and a bit of a, you know, crack and whatever, like, you know. Uh, and then also, I think within the first five minutes, you annoyed the hell out of me. Did I? I wonder how you I did, did that. I, guess, I bet you I can guess how I did. I bet you, I bet you, you know exactly. Come on, how, how did you know? Because you remind me every time I do something like this on radio or say something nice or be nice, Dusty goes, oh, for God's sake, I was giving away prizes and I was doing a competition and the truth of it probably was that when the person got it wrong, I went, ah, well, no, that's not the right answer, but sure, you, you win anyway. Did they ever, do you ever wonder why they never put you on the lottery show on <laughs> <Yeah>. telly? <laughs> and sure, if those numbers don't suit you, it doesn't matter. We'll give you, we'll give you a thousand euros. Oh, right? dear, oh, dear. No, you were a good man <laughs> for that, though. You, and what I always liked about you, Dusty, was you just called it as you saw it. You told me exactly what you were thinking, which actually I think probably is one of the reasons we get on, is because I know that when you tell me something, you really mean it. You're not sort of pulling your punches or you're not sort of, you know, being nice. You'll tell me, you know, exactly what you think, even if it might, might hurt me or offend me in some way. Yeah, well, that's 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 one of my traits. One of my other traits is um, is not being able to handle people who are not well. My my mom is is a very positive person. Mm. All right, to the point where if you are literally on death's door. She'll be, ah, now, come on, get up. There's nothing wrong with you at all, really. <laughs> like, you know? You're fine. I mean, the joke in our family now is like, you know, kind of, oh, goodness, you know, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Mrs. Murphy the other day died. They cremated her. Uh, they brought her ashes home in the urn. And my ma said, give her two weeks and she'll be back <laughs> she'll to be work. Grand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's funny, not funny, but it's interesting what you say, because I don't think there's anything unusual in that. And I would even apply it to myself in that, Nobody likes to have to, to deal with the subject of p potential death. 
you know, mm. if someone is diagnosed with cancer, uh, if you're a realist and you you think about cancer, there's always that consideration that this could end badly. Mm. Um, and a lot of the time, and more so now than before in more recent years, it doesn't end badly. But I think men particularly aren't great. We're just not great talkers anyway. We're not great at sharing that kind of stuff. We're great for mm. communicating and lots of other things and having the fun and all that. But I think when it comes to deeper stuff, when it comes to discussing someone's health, the fact that someone might, may, may not be there for another, in a year's time or, or two years time, we tend to steer clear of that subject matter because it's, it's in, in some ways you don't want to have to get into a, a situation where you're upsetting somebody or you might be upset yourself by having to discuss it with them, or you might fear what you'll say might upset them or upset their family uh, or that person who's been a long time friend might suddenly take the hump because you said something that was never intended as uh, as being anything other than caring and thoughtful, but they misunderstood it. All of that. So it is a minefield, I think, and I, I'm very conscious of it myself, uh, of what you do say, what you can say, what you shouldn't say. And, and the problem is, it all depends on the person you're talking to. You know, it can change. Let me bring you back to what you said about nobody likes to think about it. Mm. And especially guys don't like to mm. think about it or talk about it, okay? Now, you were you were mid-50s, rolling through life, not a care in the world. Not a care in the world. Tell me about how that lead up to, to how you discovered that you had cancer and the kind of cancer that you had. It, it goes back to my birthday of 2017. And I was to have a party uh, with the family in the house. My brother was to come over and we were having lamb. It's funny, you can actually remember the meal and everything we were going to have. And it was a leg of lamb and the old Irish saying, now I love it, but it doesn't love me. It always brings to mind because when I ate leg of lamb, particularly, I enjoyed it, but I'd always be a little, feel a little bit off after eating lamb for a day or whatever. It didn't stop me from eating lamb on a fairly regular basis. So 2nd of July, 2017, Dinner was laid out and unfortunately my brother couldn't make it and the situation developed. So we had, the di we had dinner, just my, myself, my wife and my daughter, Emily. And I had a fair whack of lamb that day, I have to tell you, enjoyed every bit of it. But I wasn't well the next day. I felt sort of crampy in my tummy and just not great. And I said to Mary, I said, you know what? If proof was needed, I definitely have to cut back on lamb. I think I'm going to steer clear of lamb now. That's really upset my tummy and I've got cramps and I'm just ugh, not great. That was the first indication of anything at all. And from there, I went through that week with on and off cramps. And that was the start of it. I'm kind of, so, kind of rather than going on and on and on, that's really where it started. Normally, um, guys, when they have that, mm -hmm. it'll be just, ah, it'll be fine, or I'll put up with it, or whichever. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, trying to get a guy usually, well, sorry, trying to get me usually, <laughs> people mm -hmm. that I know, into a doctor's surgery, to say, like, you know, kind of like, if, if I say to my wife, I'm going to see the doctor about this, she knows it's serious. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it that made you kind of go, oh, hang on a minute now, maybe yeah. I need to go and see a doctor? Yeah. Well, that was 2017 July. I went away on holidays that Saturday night into Sunday, and I had no problems right through my holidays, eating, having a few drinks, nothing at all. So I was over it. It was a small little bug thing, or I'd got a cramp in my tummy, and that was it. But... There was something in the back of my head that kept niggling at me. And really, it was my mother I could hear. My mom died at 56 from, as it turns out, bowel cancer. Now, I didn't realize it was bowel cancer until we investigated it again. 
um, and it was bowel cancer. So I could hear my mother saying, you know, you're, you're, and it's funny, I was going to be, there you go. I was going to be 50. I just turned 50. Sorry, what, I've been 55 to go to turn. That's right. I was 55. And I was thinking now next July, I'll be mom's age when she was, and she was gone at 56. And I could hear her saying to me, you want to go and get that checked just in the back of my head. So I did for no other reason, but just to satisfy my mother picking away at my brain in the back from wherever she was uh, in heaven. And uh, I went to the to my GP and I said, look, I can't tell you I'm of any problems, but I said, I just want to let you know I've had these cramps and I kind of don't feel like I'm hundred percent right. And he said, well, he said, let's just get it checked. So he sent me for a colonoscopy, which happened in January, 2018. And the uh, consultant came out and she just put her hand on my shoulder and said, look, Aiden, I'm sorry, but we have found a tumor in your bowel. And uh, she said, stop. That's a big statement. It was. It is. It will remain with me for as long as I live. I remember her. When she said the words. Yeah. What was in your head? Initially, nothing. Initially, if you ever think of Tom Cruise in that movie, Saving Private Ryan on the beach when they, they shut everything down and all you can hear is a high-pitched tone as the battle goes on around him and the world is descending into chaos and people are being blown up and the horrible noise of battle and death. And yet silence, that's what I heard, silence. And it's possible, in my head at least, a ringing tone. And then suddenly I'm back in the room with the doctor and I'm listening again to what she's saying. And I'm sure she probably said a lot more to me from what I can remember, but you switch off for a few seconds or, and you know, 30 seconds, whatever. And then you come back and you realize she just told you that there's something wrong. And then you're here saying things like, so we're going to arrange for you to have um, a consultation with a great team in James's. You're going to be operated on in the next three weeks. And this is all going to happen very quickly. And you're going to be under a great team and you, and the one thing she did say to me was, so she said, I want you to stay positive. And some people don't like being told to stay positive or people who have cancer don't like this idea of, you know, you've got to be positive. Um, and they have good reason to feel that. Um, but anyway, that's for another, another part of the conversation. So that was it. I left. I was met by a colleague from RTE who was picking me up, a, a chap who was a good friend, lives in Lucan, and I'd arranged for him to pick me up. And uh, he was the first person I told. And then I broke down outside <laughs> in the reception area. Describe breaking down. Well, I told him what I'd just been told. And then it, then I think the reality of it hit me. It hadn't hit me up. When I said the words myself, I think I realized what I was saying. And I think I realized what possibly lay ahead. Um, and that was suddenly kind of, you know, quite earth shattering and, and may, may just stop in your tracks and the, and life and the world and your concerns about the trivial things in life suddenly all spun 360 and you thought, hang on a second, I'm in trouble here and I'm on my own. And when I say I'm on my own, I mean, I have everyone around me. I know of all my friends and but you, you feel alone, you feel on your own, you suddenly realize that you are just, you know, spinning out of control uh, at that very minute. So your friend drives you home. Mm. 
and then you have to then say those words, but not to a neighbor well, or somebody no. who's just a friend, but to your life partner, your wife. I did it very well. Very classy, Aiden. Aiden knows how to treat his wife properly. Oh, knows how to look after, after a woman and protect her and calmly break the news to her. I rang oh, her God. on her mobile phone, which was walking through town to tell her I had been diagnosed with a tumour. And poor Mary collapsed on the street, had to go into a shop and be given water. Talk about, well, maybe that's an indication of how, how fuzzy my head was or how, or maybe it's an indication of how stupid I am or how, how little care I have for my poor wife. God, love her. So she had to diagnose that, or digest that rather information on the side of the street in broad daylight when, you know, that was the last thing I should have done. Anyway, that's what happened. So listen, that you uh, went to the hospital for treatment. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your first day there and the, and the treatment that you had. So I was, you first meet the consultant and they have a series of checks and tests and uh, all of that to figure out what they're going to do, where the tumour is, how they're going to deal with it. Uh, like they go and approach it with uh, treatments first um, and then remove it or what. But anyway, they decided there and then to go straight in. The tumour was located in an unusual position in my bowel. It was, tumours tend to be on the far left or the far right generally in these situations, but mine was sort of top centre, slightly under my tummy, kind of under my chest, which presented them with a bit more of a, a challenge. And um, so they had to look at all that and then they explained to you where they're going to go, what they're going to do. They're going to cut a section of your bowel away and they're going to sew up the remaining bowel and they're going to use, basically seal it up, seal your bowel back together and um, all of that's explained and uh, and that that is going to happen on such a date and they're going to then give you lots of information about you know preparing and what to do when you get to the hospital and um, there's a lot of stuff goes on a lot of tests and things like that as well but really it, it all did happen as the consultant who diagnosed it said I mean I was in had the operation and was home within a three-week period which really was very quick um, and that was a difficult, the, the, the operation, uh, it's funny, you can, you, you, you go through it and you, you put it all away and you, you sort of pack it up and put it in a box and forget about it. But, um, the time in hospital was, was worrying and it was frightening. And I was in a ward with uh, three other men and you're looking around you and you're looking at people who were very sick. Some had throat cancer and man beside me was an, a gentleman, an elderly gentleman who had a fall. So you're not necessarily in a ward with just people who have cancer. You can be in a ward with a number of different pe- people going through different uh, health crises. But um, that that was kind of, you know, that was unpleasant in that you realize you're in the middle of something serious. And the operation was, the operation was fine. I mean, the operation is over and done with before you know it. You don't realize it. Um do have a memory of one man going down, I, I think I might have mentioned it to you before, where I was waiting to go into surgery and there was a man beside me who, God love him, was terrified. And he turned to me and he said, you know, he said, um, I, I'm having an operation here, he said, and I've got terminal cancer and I, I don't think I'm going to make it. And I was already up to high dough. Now, I, was, I would have been sedated a little bit for going in for the operation, but I remember trying to muster some thought in my mind as to what to say to calm him or to reassure him. I can't honestly tell you what I said, but I was kind of happy what I said to him at the time. I remember that, but I felt so sorry for the poor fella. And I'd say I was, in a sense, he was just, 
vocalizing what I was feeling anyway. You know, he was just expressing great concern and worry. And I would imagine the poor fellow had been through a lot. Did that meeting other people who either were going through a cancer process or people that you might have met who had cancer and were kind of coming out the the far side of it, did that normalize it for you in any way? Because I'm just, I'm just thinking if you get the news, is like you said you were alone and you must have felt like I'm the only person in the world who's mm. ever had cancer ever. Yeah. And the, the, the strange part of all this is when you, get, when you start into this, in this situation, you're not, there's no time for you to uh, meet and discuss it with other people who might be going through the same thing. Uh, you are on a roller coaster ride because time is of the essence. Certainly in this case, it was anyway. So it wasn't that I had six months of treatments or things like that before they made a further decision as to what they were going to do next as part of my treatment. The d- diagnosis and the decision was made to address it there and then quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, therefore, there was no time to talk. The only people I spoke to were the nursing team on the, on, under the consultant who was doing the operation, the consultant himself, and, uh, and family. And um, so I didn't really got, get to talk to people uh, I don't think I wanted to talk to people who had or were going through something similar or had been. What did you do then for your own head just for, I mean, what kind of support did you have for what you were going through? Well, I would have always been very, a strong faith um, and still have to this day. And I always did have. So for me, um, my faith really kicked in and I, I, I saw it as a test of my faith as a test of whether I had just been reciting words over the years or whether in fact, and this was the one thing I did think a bit about was what, what I actually believed in. Did I believe it or did I follow it? Um, or did it really mean something to me? Did it, did it, was it now going to become a support in a crisis? And could I feel a sense of calm? Could I feel a sense of support from, from God. Um, and that was important. And I think if I, I can say, I, I definitely benefited from having my faith. Did you find yourself um, reading the, the Bible anymore or did that kind of getting into it that way or just no, more? No, just more reflection or? and contemplation, more prayer, more talking to God, more sort of really talking to God. Um, mm. You say? Thinking about, you know, uh, I accept whatever decision you've made for me. I accept if this is to end badly that it's your decision and I have to accept that. I worried about my daughter who has Down syndrome, worried about Mary who's a worrier at the best of times. And I grew to come to accept that if it did end badly, that that was the way it was going to be. And that I, I accepted that. But I prayed for a recovery and I prayed for, um, I prayed for, I prayed for a return to full health, um, if it was possible. But I mean, at that stage, you are really out there in deep water, far from land. You, um, you, you're starting a long journey. You don't know how long it's going to be, but you know, you're starting something that will go on for a while. So, uh, so prayer, very much important for me, at least through that period of, and still is to this day, I still wake up every morning and I, I thank God for being awake and alive and feeling well. And I'm, I'm more, I've more empathy for people, I think, who are unwell. 
I think I think a lot of people who are in hospital, I think a lot of people of the of the nurses and the doctors whom particularly at the moment are going through a terrible time around the world and in Ireland, but just those who deal with illness every day. So yeah, that, that kind of always is at for, to the forefront of my mind now, more so than it ever would have been. You said that uh, people like me who always try to take a positive spin on no matter what the situation is, drive you nuts. <laughs> well, oh, my dad, my dad is a great man for that. Well, you know, you're, you're, very, you're a positive lad now. You want to stay positive and be positive now because that, being positive is going to, almost, it's going to cure you, you know? Um, I never believed that positivity was going to cure me. I don't believe that being positive is going to turn everything around. But I, you learn a bit about yourself. Um, and I learned that nat- just naturally, I am a positive person. I didn't know I was. But I learned that I always did see the positive side of, of things. I, I could see that I was going to be, I felt I was going to be better. Now, I accepted I might not be, but I felt that things were going to work out. Now, if you call that positivity, that's what I had. Glass was always half full. I never felt at all, well, there were, there were, there were times when I was low, but I honestly could never tell you that I felt I was packing it all up, that I had enough, that I just wanted to die. I never got that low at all. Um, you know, because it, it can't, I'm sure there are people who would suffer with depression and, and would bring them down, and understandably so. But for me, no, I, I, I was, you know, so when people say you've got to be positive, I understand what they mean. But being positive doesn't equal recovery, you know. Hmm. Did you find yourself thinking about to the future about things that you haven't done? I mean, did you did, were you looking back in your life thinking, "Oh my God, if this is it, I never did blah 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 blah," hmm. or did you say to yourself, "I'm glad I did all those extra weekend shifts." <laughs> <laughs> Well, you see, and, and made that extra hundred quid and got the garden shed uh, yeah. a roof refelted. That, that was worth doing. Uh, um, <laughs> no, it's, it's true. No, but but did, you, did, did you ever, did, did you look back, kind of look back in your life and think, oh my God, I never did. Because I, I'd say that I'm, I'm a great man for one day in the future, I'm going to do vumf that, mm-hmm. all right? Uh, our thing was always uh, one day in the future when I retire, we're going to move to the Mediterranean, we're going to live in the sun. And uh, as life, as as it happens, uh, that all happened about two decades before I intended it to. Um, and I'm absolutely delighted to just uh, the way that it worked out. But it did kind of in my head teach me. It's like, you know, well, don't wait because you constantly mm-hmm. hear these stories about, you know, such so, 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 and he worked every day in his life and he retired then. And two weeks later, boom, yeah. dead. Indeed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm kind of, I'm glad I've, I've, uh, I'm doing these things now. Back to you. When you were going through and reflecting, did you think to yourself, did you look back in your life and evaluate it and say, I haven't done this or I wish I'd done that or I regret doing that? Did you have any of those thoughts? Um, <clears throat> I, I don't think I'm that way inclined. I tend not to look back. I always tend to look forward. Um, um, but I do remember thinking of how lucky I had been my from in my life in that when I was a young lad uh, I the only thing I wanted to do and I used to actually play radio when I was a young fellow at home a neighbour and myself used to make radio programmes in his front room he was the producer and I was the presenter I mean we were young fellas we were kids we'd record a programme and we'd listen back to it as if we were listening to the radio so we're talking kids here and I reflected on how lucky I had been to have 
got into having spent seven years in the civil service working in the revenue commissioners, um, but having then left to take up a career in radio and spent my entire working life after that in radio, doing what I wanted to do as a child and to eventually have got to work in RTE. Um, all of those things I did reflect on and, and appreciate it. Um, I can't say I regretted anything really. I look back and, and if I were to look back now, there's, there's very little I can look back on and say, I'm sorry I did that or I regret I did that. Um, I'm not saying I'm perfect or that I haven't made mistakes, but in general terms, I'm nothing of great regret. And I didn't look back during that time feeling sad about things. Did you look the other way and, and think about the future? That a future that may not exist? <sighs> hmm. I think I lived in the minute, in the moment. I spent my time living from, from day to day, dealing with day to day stuff. The news today was good. Uh, the operation went well. Uh, recovery's going well. Then maybe the next day, feeling a bit sick and not well today in the bed in the hospital. Oh, not good here now. But, um, you know, I'd reflect on tomorrow. I'd probably be a little bit better. It's just a bad phase today. And there were a few days like that during the recovery of the, after the operation. And um, there was one day in the after the operation when I had to, um, because there were no um, drains in my body and my bowel after the surgery, um, there was um, a release of, of what would be just byproduct of blood from the operation. And uh, when I passed that, I, I was very upset, very shocked. And the nurse had to reassure me that it was completely normal under the circumstances of the operation I'd had a lot. So there were moments of terror, there were moments of worry, but they, they were always followed with a sense of, well, look, that's okay. That's all right. I'm, I'm over that and uh, feeling good today. So I always tended to live in the moment, but not look too far into the future. And what do you think about your wife, Mary, and your daughter, Emily? I think poor old Mary, my wife, is, oh, God love her. You know, I mean, it's bad enough being married to me, but then having to go through all that. Um, she's great. She's absolutely great. She's been brilliant. I thought if you'd asked me before it, if my wife would have coped with it, I would have said no. I would have said that, this was such a serious thing to happen to our marriage and to me that she would have fallen apart and that she genuinely could have ended up uh, needing care herself. Uh, I would worry about Mary's strength of her ability to hold everything together. I mean, she holds everything together anyway. I mean, like, you know, she does every day of the week in the house here. But when something like that comes along, I would have worried about her. But you know what? She was absolutely brilliant. So I have great respect for Mary, uh, great love for Mary, great a better understanding of Mary um, since I got sick. Maybe a better appreciation of Mary, um, which equals probably greater love for Mary. Um, that's not to say that I don't drive her bonkers or annoy her and I don't, I, and there are times I drop the ball, but generally that's normal. That's normal relationship stuff. As regards Emily, I would worry about, I would have worried sick about Emily because Emily is dad's girl. She's turned 20 this year. And that would have been a huge worry to me as well, because she's so deep. She's not great at communicating because verbally she would, she can, she can talk and she, she can communicate, but not in the same way as, you know, a 20 year old without you Down mentioned syndrome. That she, she, she's a Down syndrome girl, um, but she's sharp as a pin. She's very, yeah. And she's very deep and you're right. She is sharp. She understands everything. She's, she listens and she asked questions during my recovery that Mary was really kind of surprised by. So yeah, she is. She's very like deep. What? what was she asking? 
she asked about um uh what what was what were dad's bloods today um and uh she understood that they took my bloods and they were checking my bloods and she understood not in great detail but she understood there was a significance and that they were either good or bad mm-hmm. um but like stuff that you didn't expect her to ask um she, but then there were times she was quiet and she'd come into the into the hotel into the hospital and she would she wouldn't come up and give me a hug she had a look of fear in her face and she sat at the end of the bed and she'd look at me and she'd just stare at me and i obviously didn't look well and she could see that and i could see that she was worried but she couldn't express it so she sat quietly and looked at me and she was probably looking for some sort of reassurance so it was very difficult for her, but she coped with it again. Like, you know, um, she was great. She was, she, she, there were no issues in terms of her, um, personality or her behavior, uh, during my illness, which wouldn't be unusual where people have a disability or have, a, have Down syndrome. So she, she handled it well. She coped, kept it all together. So I've got great respect for Emily as well. Obviously great love for her too. Back to the hospital after you went through the operation. And then, of course, after that, you would have had a chemotherapy treatment and everything. Right. And then as you were coming to the end, how did how did it wrap up? Because, I mean, these things never end, but... Yeah, so, well, I, I mean, without dragging this out, basically, I had chemotherapy. And during my chemotherapy, after two sessions of it, I went into heart failure as a result of the way I was being administered the chemotherapy through a pump. It doesn't happen to many people. Very small number of people react I did, and they had to take me off chemotherapy, and that ended the chemotherapy for the first time. And then sadly, I got a tumour in my liver um, a year later, and that was removed. And then I went back on the chemotherapy, same chemotherapy I'd been on when I went into heart failure, thankfully recovered from that, by the way, Um, but this time administered slightly differently. And thank God... There were one or two hiccups along the way, but I was able to get the chemotherapy. So I came out of that and that was given, the last chemotherapy I got was January 2020. And uh, then there's a series of CAT scans every few months and um, all of that and your bloods are taken and are checked to make sure that everything is good. So, so far so good. We're in what now? February, early March 2021. So it's been over a year of clear uh, diagnosis um, and being clear of of cancer, so that's fantastic, you know. So, as you go about your day to day life now, has this become part of what you think? I mean, do you think about it every day? Do you think it might come back? Do you think, mm. oh, man, I was lucky; it's gone. What, what's yeah, that's the thing. It's a good question because I think no, for me, I would never think that it wouldn't come back. I think I have a healthy respect of what could happen. Um, I would be of the mind that I have recovered well and that knowing other people who had bowel cancer, like my father-in-law and his brother, both had bowel cancer. And once they got over it, they got over it and they moved on and they lived 30 years or whatever after it. So I am in that frame of mind. Um, It's not something I worry about. Um, There's no point in worrying about it. That's the one thing. I think an appreciation again of today, an appreciation of what I have, and COVID lockdown, as much as I understand it's a terrible thing for people and it's caused terrible problems and, and mental distress and, and, and depression and all that, I have enjoyed every minute of the last two years, including the COVID lockdown, because I am alive, 
I feel great. I can go for a walk. I appreciate the small things now. If I don't get a holiday in the sun, so what? Um, if I get up in the morning and I feel well and I am well and I can drive my car and I can go for a walk down to the Skerries or anything like that, that's a good day. That's a good, it's good to be alive. Um, and therefore, you know, I, I, I take, I enjoy everything I have. I tend not to look too far forward. If it comes again, we will deal with it then. But, you know, uh, it never is far from my mind, but it doesn't dwell in, on it every day. One last question for you, Aiden. Do you still hear your mum's voice in the back of your head? No, she's gone. <laughs> she obviously said, right, God's sake, he's done now. Right, I get back and do what I was doing. <laughs> Fecker, he wouldn't go. With, I took him six months to go to that doctor. <laughs> Aiden Leonard, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. Absolutely pleasure as well. Thanks, Dusty. My thanks to Aidan for sharing so openly with us about his encounter with cancer. Our story today has been brought to you by Mimosa Matters, an association of people from all over Europe who have all chosen to base themselves on the French Riviera and who want to give back to the local community which has embraced them. For more information about the association and its work to fight cancer in the south of France, do look at their website. It's mimosamatters.org. For now, though, until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thank you for listening and stay safe.